This morning, I'm just going to sort of tell the, the story of the book of Esther, and we're going to tie in some, uh, so, some different angles here. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think the book of Esther is about what we've thought it was about. I think that it's been a very interesting story as we've tried to make it a little bit more palatable, and uh, especially for, for children and things like that. Uh, but I, I think it's about something else. And I, I think Jeremiah actually uh, gives us a hint here. Jeremiah, this was 100 years before the book of Esther, but Jeremiah, when he went into exile, lamented uh, in this way. He said, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. The children of Israel have been scattered throughout the nations. Jerusalem has been uh, turned to rubble. Uh, there is no more temple. The Levites are scattered everywhere. The copies of the Torah are, 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 are who knows where they are at this point. Most of them destroyed, certainly. Uh, and uh, so this now, 100 years after this event, is the kingdom that Israel is sort of uh, mixed into. Um, let me, uh, there we go. I love this thing. This is the greatest thing ever. I'm just going to bounce around with this. Okay, here is where the, uh, the book of Esther takes place, right here in Susa. Now, here is Israel, way over here. So when Nebuchadnezzar came in, in 587, the, the, he carried away a whole bunch of exiles, and they marched hundreds of miles up the Fertile Crescent down here into Babylon. And they also went and were scattered all over the empire. So one uh, scholar said it this way. He says, the time of the exile, it's sort of when, when the history of Israel ends and the, the story of the Jews begins, if that makes any sense. We're no longer talking about a cohesive empire. Now we're talking about a people that are scattered throughout this massive region. I mean, look how big this is. This goes all the way to, from India down here to Ethiopia, up here to Greece. Massive area. And the Jews now have tiny settlements and pockets. They're just trying to remember who they are in certain places. Uh, some of them do a better job at this than others. But they are no longer a kingdom. In fact, they, yes, they, they, they uh, went back, as, as Pastor spoke on last week, uh, in, in uh, 537 when Cyrus let them come back and rebuild the temple. Uh, the, the highest number that we get in Scripture is about 40,000 people returned. There were many, many more people. In fact, a, a much greater number of people did not return. They stayed in pockets and in, in, in settlements all around the empire. And then empires started changing hands. So this is where we are in the book of Esther. And we're right in the capital of the, the, the uh, Assyrian Empire in this place called Susa. So uh, I will tell you a little bit about Susa and the king Ahasuerus that we're dealing with. It, 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 he's also known as Xerxes. And here's an actual photograph of Xerxes right here. Um, many have... <laughs> This is Hollywood's version of Xerxes. I have not actually seen this particular movie, but uh, they, he is, he's very stylized, obviously, here. But I actually like the fact that he looks so creepy because you cannot, when you approach the book of Esther, you cannot have a romance novel in your head, like a picture of, like, you know, this handsome king and the queen is laying her head on his shoulder. This is not the picture. This is a very, very scary and powerful man. Xerxes, uh, he, he had control of this whole empire, and he, he's most famous for trying to uh, conquer Greece. 
So that's what this particular movie was about, the Battle of Thermopylae. Why they had to make that into a comic book movie, I have no idea, because the story is unbelievable in itself. Uh, he, he tried to, to sweep this huge army, hundreds of thousands of people, um, over to conquer Greece. They came to one little mountain pass and were trying to get to Sparta. And if you've seen the movie or familiar with the story, you know that eventually a group of 300 Spartans held off his entire army uh, while everybody retreated and, and went to safety. So that's what he's most famous for. He eventually won that battle but lost the war. So poor Xerxes had this huge overpowering army but could not conquer Greece. Here's the reason I tell you this. I know that history, some of you guys are like, history's so boring, Pastor Jason. Because most of you had your football coach as your history teacher because he had the coach. Is that, is that true? Raise your hand. Yeah, see? See? I'm telling you, everywhere I go, people, when people don't like history, they have their football coach as a history teacher because he had to teach something. And so, anyway. It's a very unfortunate event. It's a thing. I'm telling you. It's a thing. All right. So, I just want to give you that tie-in because here, this actually, the, the timing lines up very well. This is probably what happened. Xerxes loses that war and comes back home and is all sad and misses his wife. Okay? Oh, that's the Esther begins. The book of Esther begins when Xerxes sends his wife away because uh, she disobeyed him. We won't go into that part of the story. Um, it, it, if it wasn't so sad, it would almost be funny. Um, but uh, she disobeys him and he sends her away. So here he is coming home and he's all sad. And here's a much softer picture as we turn to watercolors. That's right. It's watercolor Sunday, folks. <laughs> now, I want to apologize in advance to Carly Davis and to Wendy Bearden because there will be some Comic Sans font in this particular. <laughs> Hang in. Here's the, here's the thing. I have to do this. I know. I have to do it for this reason. I, I have to take the very dark story and at least redeem it a little bit for us, okay? So, right, hopefully it'll lighten the load just a little bit. So, some of it's kind of fun, okay? All right. So, here we go. The, uh, uh, he sends his wife away, and he, he uh, now needs a new queen. So, we're going to read a little bit here from chapter 2. I cannot read it from back there, so I will step to the side and read it from up here. Then the king's young men attended him and said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the, cit the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Ashti. So this pleased the king and he did so. Yes, well, that sounds good. Yes, find the most beautiful women in all the kingdom to come into my harem. That sounds like a great idea. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, this, uh, uh, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, etc. He was bringing up Hadessah, who's also called Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace. So here we have a great-grandson of one of the original exiles. Here he's now working as a guard in the Persian Empire he uh, uh, has his sort of adopted daughter who happens to have the unfortunate 
uh, blessing of being beautiful, and she's taken. I want to show you a, a couple things to notice right here. First of all, Esther was an orphan. She was adopted by her cousin. Secondly, she has no choice in the matter with the king. Now, here's the reason. We really have to get this. She has no choice in the matter. Uh, we, we have to understand that because, well, like I say, this has become such a romance novel kind of thing that um, you, can, you can get weird spins on this book. Uh, the, the, the first one is just to get super sweet about it and go, oh, like this is a, a um, well, this is a beauty pageant. That's really the way that we've talked about it. Like, this is a beauty pageant. Like, this was Persia's top, next top model. <laughs> uh, this is pretty cool. Like, she gets to go and put on all makeup and do facials and do all that stuff that ladies do when they get together. Um, my wife has one of these wax foot bath things. And, like, her and my daughters do this and put their feet in it. And they always try to get me. I'm like, no, I don't want that stuff on my feet. I don't under- Well, this is not a new phenomenon. They, serious cosmetic treatments that they're going to do here, and they're all, this is, a, this is a months and months and months and months long process. But it's not so then they can go and stand up and have Ryan Seacrest out there, or whoever, announcing who the most beautiful woman in the kingdom is. This is not a beauty pageant. The reason they're giving her all these treatments uh, and, and making her smell good, make her skin soft, and all these things, is because she is going to come before the king alone. You see, she's a concubine. She has no choice in this matter, but that is what the story is about. She is brought into the king's harem. The king has hundreds of women, and every night he chooses a different one. And this is what Esther has been brought in for. It's a very unfortunate situation, and it's a sad story. Now, some people in noting this, there's one particular high-profile preacher that was talking on this book and pointing this out. I mean, it's right there in the story, but it's just you know something we tend to gloss over. Said, Esther was a very sinful woman because she was a concubine. You guys, the, she was a slave. This is sex slavery. This is modern day human trafficking. Somebody showed up at her door, looked her up and down and said, yeah, she's really pretty, threw in the back of a carriage and pulled away while Mordecai was probably pleading to let her stay. This was a terrible situation. And here she is now, and now her, both her mother and her father, father are gone, and now her adopted father, her cousin Mordecai, doesn't have her either. However, however, um, she is uh, a woman who has favor. She goes with all these other women, and for some reason has favor with the chief eunuch and the one who's all in charge of the cosmetics and all these things. So they put her, they sort of elevate her to, uh, you know, she's like the number one draft pick, you know? She's, uh, she's got Mel Kuyper talking about her on you know, TV and all kinds of, like three of you got that joke. Um, and uh, and she, she's, she's going through all of this, and people are talking, hey, have you heard about Esther? Have you heard about Esther? She, I think she has the best chance, right? So finally, she gets her turn. And again, this is such a sad thing. She gets her turn. In other words, she's the next one the king chooses, so she has to go and spend the night with the king. And she does. And this is right here, the next thing that we see. I actually like this picture because look at the look on her face. Yeah. Okay. She becomes queen. 
Not exactly the stuff of the romance novels, is it? You see what I mean? All right, well, we're gonna fly through this story now because this is a fascinating story. Um, and uh, so bear with me as there's lots more watercolor and a little bit of comic sense. <laughs> Cousin Mordecai. Cousin Mordecai is a palace guard. He's a good guy. When he lost Esther, it was probably a very sad thing for him. But Mordecai had one moment of glory. He happened to overhear a plot, an assassination plot on the king. And he turned in that plot. He told his information. The assassins get captured. He's like, yes, yes, I'm going to get noticed. Well, nobody notices. Some local scribe comes and writes it down, gets all his information, files a police report, and is gone. Poor Mordecai. So that's his one moment of glory. Uh, and now his uh, adopted daughter happens to be queen. So, you know, there's some good things about that. At least she's not a concubine anymore. Now she, you know, she's going to be at least treated well, hopefully. Um, but, uh, you know, poor guy. So here he is. Uh, now here is another fella named Haman. So this is Haman on the right and Mordecai on the left. Haman is brought up suddenly. He's this powerful you know, probably a very persuasive, slick personality. And the king elevates Haman to be his royal vizier, his prime minister, his number two guy in the whole kingdom. And so uh, he, there's an order put out. Everyone now will bow to Haman. And uh, so Haman demands that, and everybody does. But he walks out, and he sees this guy, Mordecai, cousin Mordecai, same guy. And he says, bow. And Mordecai says, nope. <laughs> he refuses to bow. Now, was this a religious thing? Was it because he had uh, an attachment to Yahweh? There's no indication in the text that it had anything to do with that. I said I'm going to like ruin this book for some of you, okay? There's no indication. Now, it might have been. It absolutely might have been. But there's all kinds of protocol. If you're going to bow to a guy like this, it, it would mean that he deserved that kind of honor. And I have a feeling that they might have had some history, the two of these guys. And maybe Mordecai knew more about Haman's character than a whole lot of other people did. So, who knows? It might have been because he won't bow to anyone else except the king and God, as some have suggested. But I don't know. It's not in the text. It's, it's pure speculation. So, here we go. For whatever reason, he says no, and he does not bow. Now, Haman is enraged. He doesn't just get mad at him. I mean, this guy, he's like anger in the movie Inside Out. Like, he blows, you know. He gets so angry. He goes to the king, and he says, King, uh, there's a guy. No, no, no. There's more than just a guy. There's a whole people group out there that have to be killed because they disobey. He wants to get revenge on the entire Jewish race because of Mordecai. This is a pitiful, pitiful man. It's almost sad. Everyone bows to him, but one guy doesn't, and he just can't handle that one guy. That one guy. So, the king signs off on what Haman asks. He says, can we just go ahead and exterminate all the Jews? And the king's like, yeah, that sounds good. Unreal. It actually doesn't tell him who the people group is. It doesn't, it doesn't appear. He doesn't say exactly who they are. The king goes with it. Uh, the king has no idea that his own new bride, the queen, is one of these people. Okay? Unfortunate situation. And so he says, can we exterminate all these people? I will pay for it. We can have a special day of state-sponsored genocide. We can have balloons. It'll be this great 
ordeal for the kingdom and I'll fit the bill and we can make sure we do this. It's horrible. This horrible man. And the king signs off. So, naturally then, Mordecai freaks out when he finds out about this and goes to Esther and says, do you have, do you have any idea? Do you have any idea what just happened? The king is doing this thing and all of us are going to die if he goes through with this. Even you, Esther. Here's what he, 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 he has this intense conversation and she's going, what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to do about it? He's like, you're the queen. She's like, yeah, but that's not as cool as you might think. <laughs> the queen had her own deal. You know, she had, she had the, she, the, the, the queen had her own uh, uh, place. She could throw her own parties, mostly for the women. She couldn't come over into this realm. They did not share uh, quarters. They did not share a bed except when he called for her. And he had all these other women. So they, she says, listen, I, I don't even get to stand before the king unless he calls for me. And he hasn't called me to his bed in over a month. What do you want me to do about this? It's probable she hadn't even seen her husband in over a month. And this would have been also, just put yourself in her shoes. I mean, how dejected would you feel then even as the queen? Like, oh, he's got all these other women that he's interested in. What kind of clout do you possibly think I have, cousin Mordecai? This is kind of ridiculous. And he says, you've got to do something. You've got to go to him. Now, this is a very, very scary thing to go before the king of, uh, of, of Persia. He's a powerful man, the most powerful man in the world, and he looks really scary. He's got earrings on his face, apparently, as we saw. So, if you're going to go before earring face king, you have got to be called. And if he doesn't call you, that's a big deal. And if you're a woman and he doesn't call you and you go to him, that's a really big deal, even if you're the queen. The law demands nobody comes before the king. You have got to have all kinds of separation. You see this in different movies, oriental movies. There was one called uh, Hero. That's a fascinating, one of these martial arts kind of movies. But you, 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 had to have, you couldn't come with a certain amount of paces of him because they were so terrified of assassination. So even if the own, his own queen came forward, it was like, do you trust her? Do you trust her? Are you ticked off that she's coming in? Because this is the men's zone, not the women's zone. And if he is not happy about her presence, she will die. It is a death sentence to come before the king unannounced, unless he pardons you with a scepter. Intense moment. Here's what he says, Mordecai to Esther. Do not think yourself, uh, to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've got to do this thing, Esther. So she calls a fast. She says, let everybody in the kingdom fast for me. Cover yourselves in sackcloth and ashes, and I'll go do this thing. So they do. They cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and there's posters all around that on the certain day, they're going to be eliminated. And it's it, it, whoever wants to join in on the bloodbath can. And the, if they do, if you kill a, a Jewish person, you can go in and take their entire estate. And the, the, the state will say nothing about it. They'll let you do it. In fact, they'll endorse it. They'll hand you the sword in order to do it. Terrible thing. So they all start fasting. And finally, on the appointed day, Esther goes before the king. She, she puts on her royal robes and she stands before the king, knowing that this might be her last breath. But when he sees her, he says, why, hello. <laughs> and he extends the scepter. And she touches the scepter. And everybody, the entire nation, breathes a sigh of relief. 
So, an intense moment. Um, she, when she gets there, he says, what would you like, my queen, up to half my kingdom? So he's really smitten with her. It's almost like, oh, yeah, you. We got married, you and I, didn't we? You look familiar. I, I, I like your hair. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. She's like, yes, me, hi. Can, let's have a banquet. Can we have a banquet, you and I? Because I fixed this really great thing. I don't know what she made. Whatever. What did they eat? Brisket, probably? Anyway. So she's got brisket and just going, and, and he says, I want you to have a banquet with me, but I want you to bring Haman too. Really? Okay, great. So Haman and the king are the only ones that get to go to the special banquet. So here we go. We're going to go now back to Haman. Now this is, you know, uh, uh, the story takes a, a, a funny turn. Uh, and uh, uh, so here is Haman, he's all excited. He has a banquet with the queen. He's like, yeah, that was so cool, man. I'm one of the cool kids, and I'm coming back tomorrow because Esther invited us over tomorrow. And he comes out. He's doing this thing, maybe kind of a commander strut kind of thing. <laughs> he comes out, and, and there's Mordecai. And, and he's like, hey, Morty. And Morty's like, Haman goes home. He's so furious. And the stupid Morty, and you know what else he did, honey? Do you know what else he did? He wouldn't bow. And you know what else he did? And you know what else he did? He's so upset. What a baby. Utter baby. People falling on his feet all over the kingdom, but there's one guy he won't. One guy who won't do it. And finally, his wife gets tired of it. She's like, just build a gallows and hang him. She's like, that's a great idea. You're so smart. Oh, I gotta go to the king right now. And he does. He runs to the king right that night. He's like, I have a special request. Can we please hang him on the gallows? He's, he's re rehearsing it as he goes, right? He gets to the king. Now, here's what he doesn't know. The king has had trouble sleeping that night and asked for a bedtime story. Um, here is the king's bedtime story. He's, you know, he's laying there. He's going, oh, somebody read me the story of me. They're like, okay, sir. You know, you know Xerxes goes third person, right? He's like, Xerxes wants a story about Xerxes. And so they come and they're reading. and like, okay, and then this happened. And then Xerxes, wait a minute. Read that part about handsome Xerxes. Okay, fine. Handsome Xerxes says this. He goes, and they, he, they just stumble upon this story that he might have never even heard before. It was a story of Mordecai exposing the assassination plot. He's like, Wow. Mordecai, huh? Did we ever, like, did we send him a Hickory Farms gift basket or something? I mean, we should have done something for this guy, right? And they're like, no, it doesn't look like it. There's no receipts in the royal treasury. And he says, well, we got to do something. It's right at that moment that Haman comes in. King, king, can I talk to you? Come on in, Haman. And Haman comes in. He's like, king, I've got to tell you something right now. You see, this is Morty. He goes, hold on just a second, Haman. Haman, what should I do for someone that the king really, really likes? I mean, a lot. And Haman's going, who else but me could this be? King, I think you should do something really wonderful. I think this guy needs a parade. I think he needs lots of balloon animals. I think he needs a whole bunch of t-shirts with his face on it. 
think he needs a celebration. This guy needs, he needs everything we can, everybody in the kingdom needs to know how awesome he is. Oh man, we need to go all out, big feast, everything. And the king's like, I like the way you think, hey man, let's do it. Yes, do all of that thing for Mordecai the Jew who saved my life, and Haman's going, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks, sir. It is a funny scene. It really is. Because he you can just see it coming. You're like, oh you dork. Oh you dork. You're gonna hate this. So they do that. He honors Mordecai, the last man on earth he even wanted to honor. He accidentally honors him and sets Mordecai up, actually, to become a hero in the story. Fascinating. So here we go. Here's what he actually here's that moment from that after he tells him everything. He's like, well, here you gotta see these together. What? Huh? Ah, see, what? Oh, tell me, what should I do? It's a Mordecai. Ah! Okay. Ah. So, here they are. The story accelerates. They go to dinner the second night. And finally, I, I, think she, I think she wanted to make sure that the king, she had enough clout with the king the second night. I think that's why she waited till the second night. Uh, so, they have dinner, and she's like, okay, king, here's the real reason I brought you here. There's a guy who's trying to eliminate all of my people. And he's like, what? Who would possibly do such a thing? And she's like, uh, someone, uh, well, there he is. He's the one with his face on the macaroni salad. And so Haman is like, what? And the king is enraged. She's like, it's Haman. And the king is so enraged, he, he walks out. Now, this is another almost funny part of the story. He walks out into the garden. He's like, I can't believe this. My own guy's trying to kill my queen. What in the world? In the meantime, here's Haman freaking out freaking out. He's like, oh, no, 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 please, 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 Esther, please, 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 Esther, Esther, please, 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 and he's like, you know, come, he's like, come, please, please, and you're not supposed to get within a certain amount of steps of the royal queen. So the king comes in, and he sees he's too close to her, and he's like, would you dare assault the queen in my presence? He takes the worst possible interpretation of these events, and this is how dare he hang him. And they're like, somebody just built a gallows last night. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's great. No money from the royal tra- I mean, hey, serendipitous. And he's like, awesome, do it. There it is. Isn't that awesome? So, there he is. And, and the king right then uh, listens to her plea. And, and he, well, he puts Mordecai, the Jew, in the place of Haman. And as a result of this, they're able to plead the case for their people. And he's able to take the sting out of his earlier decree and allow the people to band together and sort of take off the government's endorsement of this great attack and allow there to be defense. So people come to their aid. They come to their own aid. They have weapons now. And by this time, when it finally comes... The Jews are delivered in a mighty fashion. In a mighty fashion. Now, I tell you, this is not a romance novel, and that's true. I also want to say this. I, uh, there's not clear evidence that Esther or Mordecai 
are necessarily devout followers of Yahweh. In fact, it's such an interesting book because the name of God doesn't even show up. They don't even talk about prayer. They talk about fasting. They don't even talk necessarily about prayer. It's fascinating to me. So some have gone, well, I don't know. Maybe this is a secular book, the story of Esther. Maybe it has nothing to do with God. And I say, hold on right there, just a second. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. One thing I will say, Esther is, whatever she was, whether or not she knew God really well and that's why she was able to stand in such courage, or whether she was just a frightened girl that maybe had never been told the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She was a brave woman. A brave woman that deserves to be emulated and celebrated. But I'm not so sure she's the hero of the story or Mordecai's the hero of the story. This is a story of God's care for the orphans. Remember Jeremiah's plea, his lament. We're orphans now. We don't have a home anymore. We don't have our spiritual fathers with us anymore. We are left alone in a strange land, scattered and surrounded by an empire that doesn't understand us and an empire that routinely hates us. And it's true here as well. So here they are, a people surrounded by violence. And God comes to their aid. The story is full of incredible circumstances, coincidences. The story is full of irony. But do you remember how he cares for the orphans? Do you remember? Look at this. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. A father to the fatherless is the Lord. A defender of the widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. John 14, 8, this is Jesus saying this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is a story of an orphaned people and God delivering them. It's not the story of this woman who understood it all and then became the hero or this man who understood it all and became the hero. We don't even know if they were devout. We don't even know if they knew God. But here's the the point of the story. God knew them. Wherever they were at, he knew them. And he came to their rescue. Friends, the Lord, for a couple years now, has been speaking very clearly to our particular body that this issue of foster care, this is what we're dealing with, with, well, the the modern-day orphan scenario in America. And and he, he has been speaking so clearly that we need to do something about it. So Royal Family Kids Camp is one of those ways. Uh, uh, foster Care Carnival is another one of those ways that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about for, for the, the, uh, the, the foster, uh, children in foster care there as well. There's gonna be all kinds of different ways to get involved in this. But I want you to know this is on God's heart. That God cares for children who, who well, maybe they do have a mother and father that are dealing with some, some terrible things. Maybe they know him, maybe they don't, but God knows them and he remembers them. And that's what he's asked us to do as well. He will not leave them orphans. He will come. He will come. And I want to invite you guys in to this story because here's the thing. We as the people of God, we have a really simple duty, really, and that's to follow what Jesus did. Just to follow what he did. And here's what he did. He's the God of adoption. He's the God who takes pity on those who feel alone and those who are alone. 
I want to let you know that as a body, we're moving more in this direction. And there's going to be all kinds of ways to come and be involved. And we ask you to, to ask the Lord, say, Lord, how would you like me to be a part of this? Because this is our family. And there are those who need families. Temporary and forever. But there are those who need families. And the Lord wants them to be in families. How can we be a part of that? And there's another spiritual application to this too. Do you feel like an orphan? Do you feel like he's left you? That you're going like, man, I don't even know. I honestly do not know. I, 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 I don't have a spiritual connection like I used to. I, I don't know who I am anymore. There are a lot of you guys, I think, who feel that way. I feel powerless. I used to have an idea. But now I feel abandoned. And I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he says to you, I have not forgotten you. And you are not an orphan. And I will come to you and restore that identity. This is what he wants to do. He is the God who puts us back into his family. Isn't that a good God? Isn't that one heck of a story? Let's stand together.